From Triple J, it's the Take 5 podcast. The people you love, play five songs they love and tell you why. Welcome back. I'm Zan Rowe and every week I invite someone great in to pick five songs around a particular theme. Music soundtracks our life and often triggers memories and moments that change the course of our lives for the better. I want to take you back to 2012, towards the end of July, when Chicago legends Smashing Pumpkins came to Australia for Splendour in the Grass. Right after that festival, founding member Billy Corgan came in to take five. Whether you know Billy through his band or his more recent passions in wrestling, he's a guy who thinks intensely about all he does. When he came in to co-host with me, we went deep on technology, nostalgia, authenticity and heart. The theme I gave him was five songs that make you feel good. With a distinct love of 70s prog, you'll hear highlights of these tunes and plenty from the man himself, Billy Corgan. Smashing Pumpkins have seen a number of lineup changes. In fact, on that Australian tour, Billy was the only original member on stage. And it begged the question, over these years, how did he deal with still creating music when things weren't going so well with the band? Well, I think in a way, if it makes any sense, that was the best part about being in the band was where we were able to transmute uncomfortability and unhappiness or uh, feeling left out of certain conversations. We were able to take those feelings and translate that into an idealized way of presenting music. As long as it worked and it worked with the public, it was able to sort of feed back in and on itself. When it stopped being as effective with the public, then it sort of opened up the wounds because it wasn't. we weren't able to cover them up anymore. And so it was difficult. But uh, a lot of compelling music, uh, mm. certainly. And uh, it's amazing because not a day goes by now where I don't hear somebody connecting the some song from any number of the albums. And that's the beautiful part of the world about the world we live in now is anybody can find the songs uh, anywhere. And the band just seems to grow on its own now. It's, it's sort of its own garden. 72 is the year we're beginning. You and I, or And You and I, uh, is sometimes known as well, by a band called Yes. I'm not that familiar with Yes. Oh, beautiful. So t- like, give me a musical education yeah. and dear the whole country. Why did you pick this song? Um, we'll start with Yes a little bit. Yes is one of those bands that was at the time considered a super group. Uh, guys came from different places and formed this almost crazy band where everybody in the band was a gifted musician. Um, and they wrote really interesting, unique music in an era where being this idiosyncratic could actually be popular and could produce hit songs. If you think about the song we're about to play, this was actually a big hit in America. It would be almost impossible to conceive of this song being a big hit now. So there was an openness in the time where any band coming from any perspective could have a hit song. And I think these bands were, in essence, drawn forward by that to really explore their music to its greatest depth and in a way become more individualistic as opposed to more collective, which is one of my great criticisms of music today. Um, Yes is the type of band I believe if they came out today would still be very popular, Um, with this type of music. There's uh, folk influences, prog influences, free jazz uh, influences. Uh, The Renaissance is in there too. Uh, But really beautiful and really heartfelt music. (laughs) 
Take five with Billy Corgan. covered this song for a movie called Spun if anybody remembers that movie UFO was one of those bands that came out of the hard rock scene uh, in the UK in the mid 70s mm. what made UFO a little bit different is they actually had some punk rock influences similar to the same type of influences that would say uh, influence Iron Maiden there was a punkiness of course uh, the Sex Pistols and all the typical stuff you'd remember from the punk rock scene in the late 70s in the UK well it actually influenced a, a British heavy metal as well uh, so UFO is on the more on the melodic side, where Iron Maiden would be more on the kind of the heavier side. UFO f- for fans of guitar, uh, this album features Michael Shanker, who uh, is brother to Rudolf Shanker from the Scorpions. And at one point, uh, Michael, the younger brother of Rudolf, was in the Scorpions. He left the Scorpions and became part of this supergroup called UFO, and they went on to have massive hits in the U.S. And this was one of them. Two supergroups in a row. It's all about the supergroup. <laughs> Well, you had a super group of sorts with Zwan. Yeah, super group of addicts, maybe. <laughs> I'm a big fan of Dave Paho, so I was excited when I saw Oh, I'm not a big fan of Dave Paho. <laughs> do you have any friends in your past bands? Do you stay friends with any people? Or no. do, too, too many clashings of personalities? No. Well, look, you know, I'm, I'll just keep my mouth shut. Okay. Um, I'll let you enjoy <laughs> David Paho's music without telling you the horrible person David Paho is. So. Is is with those experiences that you've had in the past? Does it, does it make you shy away from the idea of joining with other musicians and making another supergroup in the future? Absolutely. I um I think this group of people is probably the last band I'll ever be in, and I'm lucky because they're all great people and they they're very honorable and respectful people, and um, I've been lucky in that. I I never thought I'd be in a band again. How did you discover this music in the first place? Well, I was born in 1967, so I started listening to rock music when I was about five years old. For people uh, who remember days before the internet, uh, everything was word of mouth. Mm. You would hear songs on the radio, but even then, if you turn and told a friend, oh, I like this song, and if they you know, said, oh, I, I don't like that band, you shouldn't listen to them, there was a lot of peer pressure, just like there is now, but it was more word of mouth peer pressure. A band like UFO, for example, and yes, they had great street credibility. I think it's hard in this modern era to explain what the kind of street credibility they had then. 
because those bands have been marginalized by history because they don't fit into certain niches where a band like Velvet Underground perfectly fits in that niche that still exists as they should. For fans of hard rock and heavy metal, UFO, for example, stands out as a very unique band, highly melodic, punk influences, uh, different subject matter, and yet they're still good basic up-the-middle rock and roll band. Uh, This spawned bands in America like Boston and uh, Cheap Trick, things like that. Uh, More melodic, heavy music that had big hits on the radio. So there was a sort of awareness where you could find a band on the radio and then turn around to your friends and your friends would say, I like that band, that band's cool. There was nothing wrong about being on the radio in that way. Mm. Um, Bands didn't feel like they had to be cooler than to get somewhere. They just were who they were, and if they were nerdy, sometimes it worked. If they were geeky, sometimes it worked. There weren't these niche enclaves of coolness like we have now. Do you think that we had that as well in the 90s when you were then turning around and becoming a fan to a music maker and there was still these these cliques, these certain parts of the, the authentic side and the side that was after a, a commercial yeah. success? Clicks are always going to exist, but I think when it becomes a business model, that's when any alternative-minded person should become suspicious. Mm. And, you know, uh, quote-unquote hipster land uh, has become a business model now. Um, I saw plenty of kids, uh, you know, at the airport leaving Splendor in the Grass, and although many of them were actually very handsome and uh, attractive, (laughs) they looked alike. I didn't see as much diversity as I would have seen in the 90s, nor as much diversity. Uh, I saw tons of diversity in the 80s because it wasn't codified. You couldn't go on the internet and see what it meant to look a certain way. You couldn't buy the right t-shirt from eBay or whatever. You kind of had to figure it out as you went along. I mean, if somebody could see a snapshot of me in 85, I look horrifically out of place. But that's sort of how I define myself. I had to kind of figure it out as I went along. The peer pressure systems were different. Uh, musical peer pressure is always going to be there because there's always going to be somebody standing there that's cooler than you saying, oh, don't listen to that. Those guys are dumb. When you mixed Siamese Dream all those years ago, um, you were quoted as saying that you had your 15-year-old self in mind. Do you still think back to that when you're making records today, thinking about what you'd love as a teenager? No. No. (laughs) Sorry. No, I don't. Um, I'm in a different place in my life where I make music as a form of communication, and I've stopped assuming that the audience is a, a certain type of personality. Uh, I would say in the 1993 version of me, I had a very narrow band of who would actually listen to my uh, group, and uh, I, I had a picture in my mind. I'm amazed because as the world is opening up, I'm amazed how I receive uh, Twitters and, and, and emails from people all over the world that you would never figure would relate to the music. Mm. And I think you've got to get out of that mindset that you're trying to appeal to a certain type of kid with a certain type of haircut because music is a universal language and done properly, it it really is beyond uh, race, classism, gender, sexual politics. It's, it's a communication of the heart. Uh, let's jump into another epic, shall we? Where do you want to go next? Uh, this this uh, artist, you may have heard him, a little obscure, Neil Young. Oh, that guy. I love that you've picked this song because On the Beach is my favorite Neil Young record. Oh, very good. It says just, a lot about you. Does it? Yeah. <laughs> now you're going to start giving me therapy. No, good taste. Um, it's a really beautiful record. Tell us why you picked this song in particular. It's the epic closing track, Ambulance Blues. Well, let's real quickly address the record that you love so well. If you put this record in context, that's a record where Neil started to move away from the mainstream expectations of himself and getting a little bit more into folk music, a little bit more into the poetry of his music. And he was widely criticized at the time for doing it. Mm. 
you know, these are records that are critical for artists to make because ultimately they speak to people like you and I further down the road. Ambulance Blues is this great song. I don't really know exactly what it's about. It seems sort of like a sort of a stream of consciousness song, but he's certainly addressing uh, Hollywood and the mainstream of America. And the funny thing is, is many of the lyrics are, could be completely relevant to today. He also has this ability, if we're talking about songs that make you feel good, the, the timbre of his voice hmm. is so sad. Um, but, <laughs> so I don't find Neil Young sad. But, it's like when people say the cure is sad. I don't get that. Well, I mean, this, this is how I take it. But I, I guess more thinking more broadly about when you listen to music that has a sadness to it and mm. that in turn makes you happy. Do you tend to do that sometimes? Are there some things where you just think, Oh God, I'm in a crap mood. I just need to put on a really sad record, a Tom Waits record, or in mm. my case, a Neil Young record, and that makes you feel better. There's some sort of catharsis in that. I would see it as a certain artists will make you feel like they understand what you're going through, and mm. that's where the, the the relief comes through. Oftentimes, we're when we're in sorrow, we feel like no one really understands, and we turn to those artists that somehow they speak a higher language to say, "Wow, they kind of do understand what I'm going through." You know, I made an album, Adore in 1998 after my mother passed away and uh, widely misunderstood at the time. And I get compliments all the time now because when people lose something, they say, oh, now I understand that record in a way that I didn't before. And that's a great compliment that they were able to turn to that record and understand the language that I was speaking. Because loss, uh, for example, is is not always a, a pure negative. Mm. When we lose somebody that we really love, of course, we reflect very deeply on the things that they gave us, the gifts they brought into our life. So sorrow in and of itself is, is a reflective process, but it's born of a desire to want something better. If you just accepted what you had, well, you'd never be sad. You know? Back in the old folky days The air was magic when we played River boat was rocking in the rain. Midnight was the time for the rain. Oh, Isabella, proud Isabella, they tore you down and plowed you on. Up their toes on garbage trails. This is Take Five with Billy Corgan. Stars look very different. 
Space Oddity is a definitive song of alienation. Uh, he goes into space, there's this communication, ground control to Major Tom, you know, put your helmet on, take your protein pills, okay, I'm stepping out into space, and it's all very optimistic, he's floating around the Earth, wait, ground control, there's a problem, we've lost your signal, and of course, then you go back to uh, the astronaut floating in space who doesn't realize he's lost connection, you know. It's a beautiful, uh, in a way, prescient uh, dissertation on what we're going through now with technology, where we have this incredible communication possible. I mean, here I am in Australia. I'm I'm constantly texting and emailing people around the globe. Mm. I have a friend in Thailand that I've been talking to. I have a friend in Europe I've been talking to. I have a, a friend back in Chicago I'm talking to. I'm able to be connected to the entire world simultaneously, yet the minute I think I lose that phone, I go into a panic attack <laughs> like I just did 20 minutes ago. Or, you know, if you have a problem, like when we first landed here in Australia, our phones weren't working properly. You go through this weird anxiety, but yet it's all psychological because, of course, we're always connected to the people we love. So I think um, this song really speaks to this kind of thing we're going through where we're we're incredibly connected and yet we're becoming disassociated in a way that we've never been before. And those themes, though, uh, existed where that song was written in the time before all of this technology. So do you think those themes are always going to exist no matter what the actual, you know, the method is, the medium, that we'll always have that feeling of connection and disconnection no matter what we're dealing with? Well, when you look at the emerging technologies that are coming out of science where they're talking about being able to implant chips in people's brains, Uh, holographic technology, you know, even the porn industry is, of course, looking forward to the time when people will be able to have virtual reality sexual experiences. Can you imagine the money that's there? (laughs) Um, Not that I would participate, but... I'm still uh, in two-packs hologram at Coachella and then thinking about that in a porn sense, and it's... Well, but, okay, (laughs) let's take that back in the music. I mean, are we going to see now holographic Beatles, holographic, you know, whomever? How do you feel about that? Uh, I don't really have a problem with it, uh, to, to this degree, uh, people should celebrate the things they love. Mm. Um, I have a problem with this mawkish sentimentality that's going on where the past suddenly becomes really attractive when there's no other good business model. <laughs> you know, uh, we've all seen the shrinking of the music industry as a whole, and it's really struggled in embracing technologies. Well, holographic technology is something that uh, the music business probably should have gotten around to about 10 or 20 years ago. Um, music business is loathe to embrace technology because it means they have to turn the control over to other people. Mm. Music is usually peer-to-peer. The artist makes the record, hands it in the label. But the movie business, look at how they've embraced CGI. I, I just see that as just another way to, to reach people. If you're a Beatles fan, and of course you, you know, you're 15 years old, and you're of course never going to get a chance to see the Beatles, maybe you can go see Paul McCartney or Ringo Starr play. Unfortunately, two of the Beatles have passed away. If you can experience something of the essence of the 1964 Beatles, I don't see anything that's wrong with that because you're always going to get something because the music is so powerful. As long as the music is the center of the argument, I have no problem with it. Um, it's when uh, sentimentality becomes the center of the argument. Selling cell phones becomes the center of the argument. That's where I, you lose me because music is sacred and everything else around it just isn't. Is it an okay thing to take the music of 20 years ago and use it as a motivation to create something fresh and new? Absolutely. I mean, I did that. I have no problem with that. It's when it becomes an avoidance of progress. So how are you going to progress? Keep breaking myself in half. <laughs> and exposing yourself for everyone to hear. Well, look, uh, the journey of an artist, let's take Neil Young, for example. Um, we were talking before about the On the Beach record, not a hugely successful record at the time. The journey of an artist, if they're truly an artist, 
whether you're Pablo Picasso or Neil Young, the real message of that artist, the deeper message, is probably going to be lost by 90 to 95% of the public as it's happening. So the artist has to deal with the backswell of, let's call it, the stupid part of the opinion. I don't like this song. I like Cinnamon Girl. I don't like this one. Da-da-da-da-da. The artist has to have enough in, internal fortitude to stay firmly rooted in their vi- in their vision. And a visionary like Neil Young has been able to do that. Now, obviously, he wasn't able to do that on every record, every moment. And I'm sure he looks back on some things and says, oh, I, you know, I got a little lost in that. The overall message of a Neil Young is so much more powerful than whether or not you like an album, don't like an album, like a song, don't like a song. And that's what gets lost when you try to take a Neil Young and you try to reduce him down against the guy who's doing nothing but just trying to pump out hit songs. That guy can't hang with Neil Young. Neil Young could sit you in front of a, a campfire and blow your mind with just an acoustic guitar. That's why he's such a special artist. There's only so many people like that. There's only one Bruce Springsteen, one Neil Young, one David Bowie, one Tom Waits, you know, one St. Vitus, right? We have to really learn to celebrate those special artists and stop asking them to play in the sandbox with the posers and the marginal talents who really only have one story to tell, and once they tell it, we discard them. Mm. Neil Young will tell you a 27-hour-long movie, and... uh from my perspective in my musical life, I think the deeper message of the Smashing Pumpkins, the willfulness, the rank contour aspect, the, the brattiness, the stupidity, the willingness to embrace darkness, the willingness to make videos that no one had the balls to make. That's the bigger story and lesson of the Smashing Pumpkins. Whether or not you like some silly song I did or didn't write, that's a reductionist idea where I'm in the expansive idea, which is my band will live on long past me and hopefully somewhere in the digital ether will exist on for some alien to download and find something in the message. And they go, wow, Billy was ahead of his time by 4,000 years. <laughs> if we're still around then, fingers well, crossed. Well, you will be. <laughs> you will be. And Berlin is where we're going to end on. Very raw, this this song and this album, 1973 is the year. Well, sometimes when you're having a bad day, kind of like we were talking about before, you have to listen to something that kind of relates to you. Well, Lou has a way of writing a song that's so sad that you just can't help but think, you know, I don't really want to throw myself off the roof today because Lou's been there and he came back. <laughs> He's a survivor. <laughs> it doesn't get any sadder than this song. This is something that he wrote having never been to Berlin and yet... He- you can feel it in every moment of this song, mm-hmm. and yet it was made up. Do you feel like your music has to be written from experience, or you can take no. people into a fantasy? No. In fact, Pumpkins is much more of a fantasy than most people give uh, credit for, only because I've been willing, willing to embody the role almost like an actor and sort of play different roles. Most musicians really live in fantasy. I've rarely met musicians who, as we say in wrestling, live their gimmick who they are, the person they are on stage is the person they're off. Nikki Six from Motley Crue is not the same guy off stage as he is on stage. And I've had very kind of sane dinners with Nikki talking about everything from politics to, you know, rock and roll stupidity. Ultimately, we're really embracing really good actors. Uh, The talented are able to embody their experiences, whether they're personal or imagined, and make you feel like they themselves are having them. And, um, you know, maybe there's credit there to be given that it really is a fantasy game at the end of the day.
Lou Reed's Berlin, the final choice for Billy Corgan, taking five with songs that make him feel good. That conversation is why I love the Take Five. It's a chance to stretch out and explore the kinds of ideas that you don't always get to in a shorter period of time on the radio. And if you love that as well, please tell a friend about the podcast. Tell a Smashing Pumpkins fan who doesn't know or hasn't heard that interview ever before. Or if you're listening already every week, leave a review in iTunes to show your support for this new podcast adventure. Thank you so much to everyone who's already done that. Next time, we're taking five with Perth singer Kuchka. With her own distinctive style, I'm asking Kuchka to share her favourite singular sounds with you. Next time. Hey, this is George Maple. Hey, this is Nick Murphy. I'm Rose Matafeo. I'm Taken 5. Hey, this is Jake from Methyl Ethel. Hi, guys. Kate McCarthy from the Brisbane Lions. This is Joshua Hami. Hey, this is Wafia, and I'm Taking 5 with Sam. The Take 5 podcast. The people you love play five songs they love and tell you why. 